At this time, I'll invite uh, Pastor Parker to come. We've been looking to the theme of Christian conservatism, and he's been pointing out a very organic and biblical definition of conservatism, our life in Christ being the point of Christian conservatism. And so I invite him to come at this time and share. All right. Thank you. Let's do a quick review so that we're keeping in track uh, in our minds all that we've been talking about here for the last several days. Um, We've covered a lot of territory. I've tried to pack a lot in. I recognize that here today. In fact, just even in light of some of the books that uh, Pastor Hitz was just giving away, those are very helpful things to think about. Um, As he mentioned, David DeBrain's book is more practical application. Um, Conservative Declaration is trying to think in principles uh, and ideals. What we're doing here today is, in some sense, working in the realm of principles or ideals, but trying to draw it out from the fundamental things we confess. Because I want you all to recognize that uh, when we're talking about fostering conservative Christianity, we're not talking about just a cultural ideal that we've come up with. Say, well, we don't like some of the changes that have happened in modern American churches or something of that nature. It's actually working much deeper to draw to draw out the, draw out the truth of who is Jesus Christ? Who is our God? How do we know him and hold fast to him? What can we learn even from apprenticing ourselves to the examples who've gone before. And so that's why we've intentionally taken examples from church history and tried to work this out, culminating, we talked about, in the Nicene Creed, which we just sang uh, an adaptation of the Apostles' Creed together, which is good. So let me just remind us here, when we're talking about conservatism, we are talking about Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. That is the old path, which is ultimately ever new, always being renewed in Christ. And so fostering Christian, uh, conservative Christianity means being true to the reality of the gift of Christ, staying on the one way to the Father. So we studied how to think this way with the rule of faith, which set firmly before our eyes the triune God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just take this opportunity to reiterate to you and encourage you as church members here tonight. We covered some things about the Trinity and about the Lord Jesus Christ very quickly. Um, and in some ways, I feel sort of bad about doing that uh, because these are really deep truths that you will do well to learn. That's why I encourage you to be creedal Christians, to think about what things like the Nicene Creed actually mean. Try to draw out some of those implications in your own thinking and your understanding for all of life. And so we try to draw that out through creation, mankind, salvation, and so forth. So we confess that the work of Jesus Christ applied by the Spirit brings about then the one holy Catholic apostolic church. And that's where we're parking here at the end of our uh, conference. The church has to be the centerpiece of any conservative Christianity worthy of the name. I'm trying to argue that the church simply is the way life in Christ works. Life in the church is intrinsic to the way to the Father. If you want to hold fast to that way, you're going to have to hold fast to the church, actually, because that is Christ's body. This is the way life in Christ works. But if that's so, and we learned that the church is always in Christ and of the Spirit, we started talking last time about how do we actually see it. If we're going to give ourselves to this way and practice it well and cultivate this well, how is this going to work out in actual life? We said that the one Spirit manifests the one body in local assemblies. You're going to have to give yourself to a local church and serve the Lord and work there and, and, and love there. These assemblies, as we said, uh, preach the word and administer baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are core practices. <clears throat> Pardon me. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are actual participation in Christ. And I would encourage you as well to dig into them and see the goodness that is there 
and live in it so that you have great confidence in what Christ has designed and given to it for his church. But there's one more point I want to add before we move on to anything else. Um, we've talked about what we've been talking about with the proclamation of the word and baptism of the Lord's Supper. We said that historically that was known as word and sacrament ministry. Now we might change the terminology if you wish to ordinances or something like that. But these are key practices. These are fundamental things that the church does. Don't ever get tired of those or think, oh, those are old-fashioned. Those aren't really going to be what's advancing the cause of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. No, that's exactly what we need to hold fast to because that is holding fast to the way Christ's life works out in this world. But let me add one more point to that, these historic marks of the church. And that is about love and the path of Christ. Christ's mission itself was an outflow of the love of God. Everybody knows John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave. And so as Jesus accomplished his mission and prepared to send his disciples out on the mission, he gave an important mark that would characterize and manifest his assembly. Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You see, when the Spirit of Christ produces his fruit in Christ's people, they love God and they love one another. What are the two greatest commandments on which all the law and the prophets hang? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. First John challenges us that any man uh, who doesn't love his neighbor, his brother, can't say he loves God. I mean, that's how in, in, in tightly connected this is to being in Christ. Fulfilling the law is love. One man, Oliver O'Donovan, puts it this way, the spirit forms and brings to expression the appropriate pattern of free response to objective reality. Paul designates this response as love. And so looking at Galatians, the legalism which demands circumcision and the equally imprisoning rejection of legalism which opposes circumcision with uncircumcision are both overcome by faith working through love. Love is the overall shape of Christian ethics, the form of the human participation in created order. Uh, So when we see love working out, Christ-like love leads Christ's people to obey Christ, uh, to pursue what is excellent. I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment, the Apostle Paul says. It leads us to honor one another, Romans 12 says, to fulfill the law, to serve one another. Uh, And though we recognize that the church is beset with many faults throughout her earthly pilgrimage, we can still say, Where there is no love, there is no church. I would go so far as to say that. Where there is no love, there is no church. Now you might remember for those who were here with us on Sunday morning that uh, love is a union of mutual indwelling in which you give yourself to another and receive another into yourself. Suggesting that love is a third mark of the church Um, is in addition to the traditional marks that many have held since the time of the 16th century Reformation. And some have been very much opposed to calling love a mark of the church because they say that's adding a subjective mark to the objectivity of the church. And the fear is that the church would become uh, a work of man and not a gift of God. And that's a a good concern, actually. Sometimes we begin to think of the church as some kind of a man-made organization or institution that we have created by our actions rather than recognizing that it's always and everywhere a gift of God. We've talked about that already. So this is a good concern. But I think it actually misunderstands love. Love is not merely of subjective motivation or something of that nature, but an affection called forth by what is really there, namely God himself and all of his gifts. That's why we took time to talk about that in creation and see how this all works in our lives. And I think when we omit the dynamic of spirit-inflamed love, it leads us to a form of godliness without the power thereof. In other words, it would be perfectly possible uh, to have a church that preaches expositional sermons and that sings uh, songs from hymns of the living God and start drifting away from what it means to be the church. 
if there isn't spirit-enabled love there. It's that important. I think faith working through love is the electrical current that runs between the poles of preaching and practice, giving power to the whole. And so, as Christ builds his church, we will see concrete expressions of love. Christ's people giving their lives for one another's good in God, all for God's glory. If you want to foster conservative Christianity, let me encourage you folks with this tonight. Love one another. Really work on that. Work on loving one another truly and growing in what it means to love the Lord with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, That's going to mean you're going to approach all of life thinking of these people. Now, I know we have a couple different churches or maybe even more represented here tonight, three maybe. Um, But your church family, you are members together. Right? They are in your heart and you are in their heart. You're not just random individuals. You're not like ball bearings in a box that just happen to be stuck in the same place and time just by random chance. No, you are a, a, a living body in Christ by the power of the Spirit. And uh, these other people are actually intrinsic to your relationship with Jesus Christ. The way you relate to them is the way you relate to Jesus Christ. And you can't pull that apart. Again, it's nice for us to think, oh, I've got my relationship with Jesus and that's going really great. Now my relationship with my neighbor, that's kind of rough. But you actually can't separate those things, right? Your relationship with your neighbor probably reveals a lot about your real relationship with Jesus because this is his body. We are truly, our lives are bound up together You know what that means? If you are not fulfilled, I am not fulfilled. If you are not walking and flourishing in Christ, I am not flourishing in Christ. Have you ever noticed how Ephesians chapter 4, when it starts talking about how in the gift of Christ, uh, he's given every part of the body to be building one another up, every member of the body working to build up the body. That The whole goal there is so the whole body grows up to be like Christ, not just you as an individual, right? It's not just... Oh, I want to become a mature person growing up to the measure of stature of Christ. It's No, the goal is the entire body is growing up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And if that's not happening, then we need to come back to what are we doing as members together, right? Our lives are entirely bound up together. And I think when we begin to capture that, uh, that understanding of the church, that... Uh, it will foster conservative Christianity. You'll begin to work together through things in life, even about all the challenging issues that we sometimes identify with conservatism, you know, worship issues or technology issues or um, how, how we live in the, in the current day kinds of issues. You know what you'll start to do? In faith, hope, and love, you will begin to deliberate together, actually, Uh, you will recognize working together in the hope of what Christ promises to begin to come to decisions, understandings, wisdom about how we live out this life. Uh, And one of the reasons I keep emphasizing these things in this conference is because, uh, again, some of those front experience kinds of issues, surface level kinds of issues that we sometimes wrestle with when it comes to uh, conservative Christianity, those kinds of prudential decisions um, are things that cannot be made well if we don't have these foundational things down well. We really need to have this down, loving each other. And that includes loving your neighbor then. I mean, I'm talking about outside the church. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. You love one another and then that love overflows into loving the neighbors around you with a Christ-like kind of love. Uh, I really think that the church can become a place that shows the world what they were made for, what true love really is, when we learn how to love one another well. And that spills over into a, a right representation of Christ and an expression of the gospel. So love your, uh, love your neighbor. I consider that to be uh, practically a mark of the church, that where the Spirit is actually at work applying Christ, you will see Spirit-enabled love. And if you don't see that, then 
the church is vanishing from there. So I urge you once again, I, I mentioned this at the close of last night, but I would urge you once again to have great confidence in word and sacrament kind of ministry, practiced in the love and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now that leads me right to my next point here, because what does love delight to do in relationship to God? Well, that's worship. You say, oh, now we're finally getting to something we think about in, in conservatism, right? Right worship, that kind of a thing. Yes, well, this is part of being the church, worshiping God. In fact, we could say it this way, all of the church does in relationship to God can be summed up as worship. I believe you can say everything the church does vertically in relationship to God can be called worship. Everything the church does, the same exact actions even, uh, as as respect of man, you can call them discipleship. And that really sums up what the church does. The church worships God, makes disciples. Um, Worship is both adoration and action, submission and service, focused on God, full of the gospel of Christ, fueled by the Spirit. For the believer, all of life is worship, but in the whole scope of the mission of Christ, the gathered assembly is the center of gravity of this mission. The work and the mission of Christ creates then uh, an action of sending disciples out to live and work for Christ and gathering all disciples as a body before the Lord to bring honor to him. Now, of course, I don't think I have to convince anyone here tonight that our worship must be that which pleases and honors God. That's exactly what love delights to do. Uh, So it must be biblical worship, theological worship. I'd like to say it this way tonight. Our worship is designed to lead us on the Bible's path to another world, which is the fulfillment of this world. Our worship leads us to another world, which is actually the fulfillment of this world. That's why we don't copy this world in our worship James Hamilton writes, The Bible's story and symbolism teach us as the church to understand who we are, what we face, and how we should live as we wait for the coming of our King and Lord. We don't want to merely think about story and symbol. We want to be swept up in them. We want to be identified by these symbols. This is what worship enables. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, our singing, praying, preaching... We're, we're entering into a whole new world that the Bible is leading us into and you're practicing it when you worship. You're, you're, you're engaging in it, participating in it, making it a reality. So our corporate worship then is full of the word of God, exalting expository preaching, including uh, what used to be called Lectio Divina, working continually through entire passages of scripture. Our worship is prayerful, since it conscientiously endeavors to include a full diet of biblical prayer, Uh, And I would encourage you to do that. Even as you are together as a church body, include a full diet of biblical prayer as part of your worship. Uh, This is something we obviously do in our own closets. This is something we do in our homes and families. But this should be what we are constantly doing together as God's people. Uh, All forms of prayer together as we worship God. Our worship is full of the Spirit of God producing singing with all of our heart. The Bible's doctrines then direct and guard our worship while also being understood through our worship. Perhaps you've heard that uh, ancient phrase, I think, which is first attributed to someone in the 5th century, lex orandi, lex credendi. What does that mean? It means the law of prayer, the law of worship. And it's showing there's really a reciprocal relationship between these things. Uh... Uh, I I said the law of worship in the second one, didn't I? Excuse me. The law of belief. The law of prayer, the law of belief. Uh, In other words, what you believe is obviously going to affect how you pray, but it's also true that the way you worship will affect what you believe. And that's very important. There is worship. Some ways of worshiping God fit the pattern of sound words in Scripture and others do not. Some ways of worshiping God make sense of biblical doctrine. They actually work it out in practice well, which is why we started with the Trinity and Jesus Christ and all these kinds of things. And other forms of worship confuse these things. There is no connection really between who Christ really is and the way his life flows out to us by the Spirit and the worship. It really is true. We need to be working these things together. 
We need to remember that in our worship, God meets with us and serves us in the Spirit, by the Word, and by baptism and Lord's Supper. We respond in service to Him, devoting ourselves to Him as living sacrifices. Uh, That is what your worship here at Blaine Baptist is supposed to be. You are giving yourselves to Him as living sacrifices. Our worship is personally and corporately holistic, engaging all of the person and the whole body together. We hear, we speak, we sing, we kneel, we lift our hands, we eat and drink, we affirm the goodness of God's creation along with creation's goal and the new creation. I believe there's a rhythm and a flow to good worship which is in time with God's time and in tune with God's tune. It really is poetry and song in action. Our worship intends to include all of Christ's people from the oldest to the youngest. It's keeping our covenant with God. So let me just give you a little bit of exhortation on worship here tonight. And I'm drawing this from Revelation chapter 15. If you'd like to look at that, that's fine. For time's sake, I'm just going to keep going here. In Revelation 15, 1 through 4, we see the saints who have conquered the beast stand on a sea of glass mingled with fire. They're standing in the very presence of the majesty of God as he manifests his salvation through judgment. And what are they doing in this text, in this vision? Well, it says they have harps of God in their hands and they are singing. They are singing the song of Moses, the text says. Now that's intriguing, the song of Moses. Well, there are two songs of Moses identified in the Old Testament. One is in Exodus 15. The other one is in Deuteronomy 32. There's one psalm identified uh, with Moses, Psalm 90. Uh, And when you look at the words in, in Revelation 15, 3 and 4, these words are not from those songs. There's, there's no record of Moses singing these words <laughs> or writing them in a song. And yet I believe when you understand what God is doing in history and what the songs of Moses were celebrating, that you realize these saints really are singing variations on the same theme that Moses sang about. So just as God acted in the Exodus to judge his enemies and save his people, so he is working now. They are celebrating the victory of God won by the Lamb. So these conquerors sing of the greatness of the Lord's deeds. These acts are astounding, they say. They are performed by one who is the omnipotent sovereign of all. They sing of the Lord's ways, which are just and true. And as world history comes to its conclusion, it becomes evident that everything God does is perfectly just and perfectly true. So they shout out the Lord's title, King of the Nations. He is the one who rules and executes perfect justice and righteousness to bring about his kingdom of peace and joy and life. And then they ask, Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? These saints know that the fear of the Lord is true worship, true wisdom, and right work. And why will all fear and glorify the Lord? Because He alone is holy. He is unique in His pure perfections. And all of His works are the perfect outworking of His perfections. And that leads the saints to sing, All nations will come and worship you. That is the hope and the confidence of God's people that they've prayed for and confessed and sung throughout history. Like Psalm 86 says, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. The reasons the nation comes to worship is the revelation of the righteous deeds of the Lord. He acts, makes himself known in judging and defeating his enemies and delivering those who trust in him. And folks, this cosmic conflict that we see coming to a resolution in Revelation is going on today. And it's a conflict of worship. We too sing the song of Moses and the song of David just as that song will be sung in glory. We do live in the midst of a culture of crisis and we may see dark days ahead, but this is also a powerful opportunity for the church to rise up, seize the day, having been commissioned to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that Jesus has commanded. The church is the temple of God in the world today. She's the discipler of the nations. And if we don't know how to live rightly before the face of a holy God dwelling in our midst, then should we be surprised if the world around us cannot see our God? You see, folks, we should recognize that our worship drives culture. 
Not the other way around. Worship drives culture. The way we respond to God will ultimately dictate how we live our lives. And in any culture, you will see what they ultimately worship. We need the wisdom to work out our worship into all of life so that we consistently proclaim Jesus as Lord in everything we do. We want to make the true God inescapable in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. We want men to know that He is Lord. And that's why we study worship. We want to gather new insights from the Word of God about how to worship God aright and drive that deep into our hearts and work it out of our feet and our fingertips. So we begin to worship by looking to Jesus, the Word made flesh, the God-man, our Savior. Jesus' work transforms our lives into lives of true worship because Jesus is a superior sacrifice. He's a superior priest of a superior covenant. His superior priesthood and superior covenant are founded upon His one superior act, His once-for-all sacrifice. And His work then transforms our lives into lives of worship. Through Jesus, we enjoy living in the presence of God. And because Jesus has worked, we can and must worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. We must press into knowing Him and making Him known, responding to Him as He reveals Himself powerfully in our midst. Because He is our great High Priest mediating the new covenant, having offered the perfect sacrifice for sins, we are enabled to participate with Him in the life of God. Oh, folks, get that. This is what life for us is. It's a participation in the life of God. So our worship must be pressing into full participation with Christ by His Spirit, and then it will be a fountainhead of glory to God. It will lead to cultural and personal renewal. Because Jesus will be exalted as the saving Lord as we worship Him in spirit and in truth, Jesus' work transforms our lives into lives of true worship. But what does this look like more specifically? Let me start honing in on worship now. If this is really what's going on, and I believe it is, that the way the church worships will drive whether we make disciples well or not, whether we manifest the glory of God or not. What could that look like more specifically? Let me get, uh, share some thoughts that hopefully will be challenging for you. I think we need to follow the storyline of the Bible carefully. Our new covenant relationship with God, our new covenant worship to God, reveals more fully what the old covenant worship foreshadowed. Remember, Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. In other words, what we're participating in now is what that was pointing to beyond itself. It was a foreshadowing that we're now living in the substance And I think by looking back even at that old covenant worship, it trains us to perceive and practice rightly what it means to worship God today. So we should study Exodus and Leviticus and understand why they were doing what they were doing. How did this reveal what it meant for a holy God to dwell in the midst of his people if we're to understand how that can be fulfilled today? We learn that the tabernacle, later the temple, was the dwelling place of the holy God with men in that day. So now Jesus is the temple and we are the temple in him. You are the temple of the living God. We worship God in the place that he provides. And what is that place? Jesus and hence the church. The assembly of God's people is the sacred space that is crucial for the mission of God in the world today. It's a gift of God's grace by which we draw near to Him by His Spirit, humbly confessing our sins, receiving His forgiveness, honoring Him with a sacrifice of praise, hearing His Word, consecrating ourselves to obey it, communing with Him at His table. It really is a glorious honor to draw near to God in His temple. You should sing the Psalms a lot to get that feel. As we do that, we are manifesting the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. So do you want Jesus to be honored as Lord in this society? in Blaine, in this area, in this time. The way to do that is not first and foremost to start new le- start off with new legislation or a new social program. It has to start with God's holy people meeting with the holy God in his holy temple. And if our corporate worship is meeting with God in his temple, then there will be sacrifice. 
I think this surprises people, but they haven't paid attention well to the New Testament. There is sacrifice in this temple. Not the repeated sacrifices of the animals like the Old Covenant, but the perfect sacrifice of Jesus having its effect in the lives of the saints so that we participate. We learn that the burnt or ascension offering has its fulfillment in Jesus. And in Jesus, we give our lives entirely as sacrifices to God, laying body and soul on the altar to ascend up as a pleasing aroma to him. That's what the old ascension offering was about. We learn, for instance, in the grain offering, that in Jesus we become a gift to God, the first fruits of his redeeming work. Jesus himself is the first fruits of the resurrection. And in union with him by the Spirit, you become that gift to God. You ascend to God. You are taken up into a relationship of love in which you participate in the life and work of God. We learn from the peace or fellowship offering that in Jesus we enjoy communion with God. Total consecration, the burnt offering, leads to total joy and peace and fellowship. And this comes to highest expression in the public thanksgiving to God, in the public thanksgiving to God. This is the highest expression of giving ourselves to him. Grace produces gratitude which overflows in giving, mutual giving of ourselves to God and of God to us. We learn from the sin offering that God gives the gift of purification. And in Jesus, who is our perfect sin offering, we are purified for holy service. Our worship is powerful as we are pure. We learn from the guilt offering that God gives us the gift of sanctity by a substitute sacrifice. And in Jesus, our substitute, we are set apart to... uh, Practice all that it means to live a holy life for him. So when we put all this together and pay attention to the order of the sacrificial worship that the Lord gave Israel, we find that this basic order that guides how we must approach the Lord and carry out our relationship with him is really the gospel, if you want to put it in those terms. Jesus Christ is our temple, our great high priest and our sin offering. But far from eliminating temple, priest, and offering from our worship. That's what we tend to think that he's done. He didn't eliminate it. He established them in their true and eternal form. In union with him, we become the temple of the living God. We become priests before God. If you heard of things like the priesthood of the believer, right? That's real. This is not just a metaphor. We offer up our lives, our praise, our service as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Again, what we see when we pay attention to the inner framework of worship is the gospel. So this is how we structure our worship. God draws near to us and invites us to himself. God gives us a call to worship and we respond with an invocation of him. We ask God to meet with us. And this shows a deep recognition of God's grace. We don't deserve this. I hope when you come gather with the saints before the face of a holy God, you have a real recognition that you don't deserve this in the least. God is giving you a gift by drawing near to meet with us as his people when he calls us to worship. That's why, again, it's an act of faith. God shows us his favor, ministers to us. Actually, just as the sacrifices of Israel were not their works to gain favor with God, but God's gift to them to live in relationship with him. So our church worship is all a work of God's grace. And then our worship, we learn from the sin offering. We are cleansed from our sins as we confess them and receive God's forgiveness. We are consecrated for holy service by the Spirit through the word. We ascend into the heavenlies by the Spirit and we hear the word of God spoken to us in scripture reading and preaching. God is feeding and teaching and equipping us to glorify and enjoy him in this world. We respond in prayer and singing and giving. And then like the peace offering, we commune with God and his people in peace at his table, the Lord's Supper. And God dismisses us with his blessing or his benediction to be his priests, to be his ambassadors. He commissions us to serve him in the world. Folks, this is the kind of inner logic of our worship. It really is a participation with God. I'm asking you to dig into that. I fear that sometimes, even in, say, uh, conservative Baptist churches, we've lost the inner logic of what worship is, the reality of the meeting with God. 
And I believe the worship that changes the world is going to come from people who know how the gospel orders their entire life before God. And the focal point of that order is going to be expressed in their corporate worship. I really believe that what we do here together speaks volumes about who our God is and how we know him. And then this gospel logic works its way out into all of life. Uh, Leviticus, for example, trained God's old covenant people how to understand and make appropriate distinctions between holy and common and between clean and unclean. And when we learn this, we image the character of our holy God. Again, in our case, in the fulfillment of that, not in the um, old covenant way. But our worship still must match God's holy character. It still has to make those kinds of distinctions. What is holy? And what is common? What is clean and unclean? What actually fits with the presence of God and what does not? And we certainly are not going to bring into the presence of God what is not fitting for our God. When we gather for worship, we worship as as God's people. We are keeping covenant with our holy, loving, saving Lord. We meet each Lord's Day. Um, And I would... I would argue, by the way, that the Lord's Day worship is a crucial uh, practice of the church that orders all of our time rightly in the face of our holy God. Little digression here. I can't avoid saying this right now. Why did God give the sun and the moon and the stars in Genesis 1? They were for signs and seasons, for appointed times. That's what that seasons is. And you know what those appointed times most often are in the Old Testament? Worship. It's the seasons of worship. Why did God give the sun and the moon? So his people would know how to come to worship him. Why did God make the sun rise today? He's still doing that, by the way. He's giving us every day the cycle of the sun and the moon so that we know how to worship him. And in fact, I think our whole lives ought to be conformed to that. And I'm sure some of you have experienced this to some degree. If you've been faithful in gathering with God's people on the Lord's Day, and that's become a part of your life, and then say you're sick at home and you miss uh, a Sunday, do you have trouble figuring out what day of the week it is? Like, oh, let's see, my schedule got all messed up because I wasn't... That's a good sign, actually. That shows us getting into your bones. You're starting to feel your life in the very way God made it to work out in the time and space of this world. And we need to keep working on that and keep developing that. The church should be the centerpiece. Not your job, by the way. Not your school. They don't dictate how life is supposed to be lived, even in its time. The worship of God does. And the church needs to do that. All right, that was a digression here. Uh, We're really on a quest to know the Lord. Um, Singing our part in the ongoing Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. We're really developing an ear to hear what is in tune with that song and what is horribly out of tune. And the way we worship bears witness to the nations what a right relationship with our holy God looks like. So having received God's training then, we are better able to worship with reverence and awe, to worship in spirit and in truth. Through our gathered worship, we say to this world, the Lord says, let my people go, that they may serve me. The world says to us in its beastie voice, who is the Lord that I should obey his people and let his people go? I do not know the Lord. Or the world may say, go ahead and worship your God, only do it on our terms. But we say God has met with us and we will keep covenant with him. We have confidence that our God will act. He will save. He will keep his covenant promises. The world will know I am the Lord. Our worship confesses the Lord is our God. Our worship shouts out our God reigns. Jesus is Lord. Turn to him and be saved. The father seeks worshipers. Our worship responds here I am. And so I pray that the music of heaven from Revelation 15 creates in your heart a deep longing to sing that song with all of your hearts to the Lord. May we all surrender ourselves to exalt Jesus as Lord together. And may the Lord take this body of believers 
and powerfully show his glory. May all the nations hear through us the spirit and the bride saying, come, come. And I'm going to have to stop there tonight. I would like to talk a little bit about membership in the church, church discipline. I'm sure that you and your churches here teach and preach those things. They are absolutely crucial. If the church really is the way that the path of Christ works in this world, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, then membership there really is intrinsic to our life with Christ. And that means church discipline actually is eternally significant, whether the world recognizes it or not. Sometimes it might feel like our church discipline in, in, in cases where that has to be the case in our churches in these days is practically impotent. I mean, who recognizes it? Who cares? <laughs> Nobody else even pays attention. People still think they can go on their life with Jesus. Um, but we practice this in faith. And I believe as churches practice this well, even working together on this, we will begin to represent Christ rightly and will make disciples of the nations. <clears throat> Pardon me. So uh, let me encourage you to practice church discipline, practice church membership well as an aspect of the Spirit producing Christ's love in your church. So much more we could say, but I think this will be a, a good place to stop without going on for another hour here together tonight. I'm going to open it up for questions here, but I do want to say uh, just briefly what a blessing and a privilege this has been for me to participate with you folks here. I've loved the opportunity not just to get to know uh, Pastor Hitz and his family more, of course, but the whole body here at Blaine and then uh, some of the other churches represented here, Grace Church. You guys have uh, been really faithful to these and thankful for that. And uh, Bible Baptist Church, I think some folks have been here from and, and, and several others. Uh, that's been a a neat uh, thing to me. So I'm thankful for that and pray that God will bless you as you go on from here. So, uh, sum up here. Keep the Trinity in your minds. Learn of that. Keep Jesus Christ, who He is, as the God-man in His work. Front and center. And then hold fast to that. Understand the ramifications of that in creation, who we are, what we were made for. And in Christ's saving work, how that works out in the church. Practice these things. You might say, like Paul said to Timothy, devote yourself to them. Uh, and though it may not seem like a lot, it's not like a nationwide campaign to uh, change the composition of the Senate or get new uh, president or something like that. But this really is ground zero. This is where it starts. This is where it works as we are faithful to do this. So let me open it up for any questions uh, to conclude here tonight. Um, in fact, Pastor Hitz, you had mentioned to me a question someone brought up to you. Do you want to reiterate that here and we can uh, maybe talk about that a little bit? So uh, I think you, you had mentioned this conversation with me, but then someone had thought about this and brought it up independently. Uh, what do you do when you have a church or what, what do you I think they were interested in knowing your thoughts on uh, predicting the future even <laughs> uh, but um, when you have a church that is faithful in preaching the gospel but they aren't faithful in practicing um, respect and reverence for God in worship mm-hmm. and those are going in different directions mm-hmm. um, the question was how long do you think the the preaching can retain its its quality mm-hmm. while the worship is going in a different direction. Yes. I think yes. Did everybody hear that? Fine. That's a, a great question. Um, a fascinating one to think about. Now, obviously, we uh, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, um, so I can't predict the future in any <laughs> particular situation. But you're right to recognize that tension. Uh, there can be, a, uh, if you will, aspects of what we do as churches that are actually working against each other, maybe going in different directions. Um, and and by the way, that's probably a lot more common than we even recognize in all of our own lives, much less in our churches. Uh, there's a lot of sanctification that needs to take place. Thankfully, God is faithful. And so that's why I would say um, 
thankfully there's a lot more to a church than just its preaching and just say it's music in worship or something like that. Um, and it actually is possible um, though, though a church's worship is working one direction that if there's some other work of the spirit going on in genuine love for one another in uh, various other ways that a church might or might not go any particular direction uh, just based on that factor. Now, that doesn't mean that isn't a significant tension or that won't exert a gravitational pull toward uh, that is a weak spot that should be corrected. Um, But uh, is it possible for a church to go on for quite a long time, actually, you might say, with uh, very skillful expositional preaching and very poor worship. Yeah, actually it is. Um, and in some ways because God is merciful. I mean, <laughs> um, so that's that's possible. Um, is it possible that sometimes through a, a good engagement of the word, the practices, the worship practice of a church can be reformed? Yes. We say that it's a natural tendency. No, probably a natural tendency is to drift the other direction, um, to be more conformed to the world rather than transformed, and and we see that happen sometimes. Um, I say that in part to say if you see a church like that, or you're familiar with one, or um, uh, which I know there are plenty around, um, pray for that church. Pray that God would really work in the lives of those brothers and sisters because I would count them as brothers and sisters. We're talking about a true church here. Um, and uh, try to be salt and light ourselves and encourage and engage <clears throat> um, with them in this. Uh, help them to see the goodness of what we're endeavoring to do as conservatives, working out the fullness of life in Christ. Um, Again, I'll I'll emphasize this here tonight, since this is our last night. I want people to see that conservatism is not a, at its heart, a defensive posture, a a fear of we don't want to become like them. Uh, and so we become to define ourselves as over against something. We're probably we're primarily anti. <laughs> if we're conservative, it's because we're against this and we're against that and we're against this and against that. And that defines us as conservative. If that's actually the case, then we're not in a very good position. Uh, and you can see why that wouldn't be attractive. Uh, who wants to be you know, just the anti-everything kind of person? You know, um, Against all those problems out there. Well, guess what? Pretty soon you're going to have problems here too and you're going to have to be against yourself. Uh, no, actually what we want is the fullness of life in Christ. And we're aiming for that and we're developing that and we're working that out. And we do what we do because we're aiming at that fullness of life in Christ. And as we learn and grow, God will enable us to progress and do better. Um, I'm sure Pastor Hitz feels this way. I certainly feel this way in our church. I don't pretend at all that our worship is perfectly pleasing to God. That we're the ones who, we've, we've got it all right. And so when we, when we worship on the Lord's Day, boy, man, the angels are singing with us because we've got it right. Uh, actually, I think, Lord, we are endeavoring to please you. And there's a lot of good things I'm rejoicing in here, but we have a lot to learn. <laughs> we have a, a lot that probably needs to be changed, a lot to grow and develop in. Uh, but that's exciting because we want to know God. And there's a good path forward here because of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so we can do that. And we can make good and wise changes as we grow in depth of understanding of our Lord uh, through the scriptures. Um, and then we're not at all tempted to do knee-jerk reactions and just try to, you know, what's new, what's popular, what's the latest, greatest thing, let's do that. Um, no, it's, it's, we have our confidence in Christ. And so hopefully even the way we've approached it this week is laying that out for you. Uh, that, that whole mindset about Christian, uh, conservative, fostering conservative Christianity. All right, good. And he, uh, yes, sir. I have two questions. You mentioned digression and ramifications. Mm-hmm. Words okay, great questions. Yes, I keep using big words here, huh? <laughs> right. 
uh, a digression means you you stop going down one path and you go off on another path for a little while. Then you come back. Maybe a rabbit trail? <laughs> a rabbit trail would be a good way we would talk about it, yes. Uh, and then ramification, good, yes. Um, the Are you familiar with the word implication or... Yes, exactly. So when when something uh, implies something else, works out into something else, we'll call that a ramification. So that's a great great question to clarify. Yep. Good. Anybody else here tonight? Yes, sir. Uh, sorry, I texted to myself on the phone. Yep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you talked about earlier about love being central. Mm-hmm. in the life of the church to be that, I like your statement, the, the energy or the conduit between teaching and, and sacrament mm-hmm. and activity. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just wondering, does activity, i.e. busyness, ever serve as a panacea for love? Mm. <laughs> uh, you mean like in some kind of a... Is it, tempting, is, is it a temptation of church to confuse activity for love? Uh, yes, I, I would definitely say yes. <laughs> um, just doing things, being busy, is not necessarily the same thing as actual spirit-formed love. Um, kind of like just being nice isn't the same as necessarily spirit-formed love. <laughs> it means actually working for one another's good in God, which means there has to be a wisdom to it. Love rejoices in the truth. The scripture tells us we have to know what's good for my neighbor and then work to do that. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that, I mean, you're raising a really good point in that um, there's always more that we as churches could do. Um, but sometimes we are tempted, I think, just to create activity in order to somehow try to create community. Yeah, let's let's have a softball team on this night, and then we'll have a you know a barbecue on this night, and then we'll have a ladies' meeting on this night, and then we'll have a men's meeting the next night, and then we'll uh, and then we'll go on a mission trip the next day, and then we'll get back and have church, you know, or uh, something like that. Um, not that any of those things are particularly wrong, um, but we always have to be uh, weighing judiciously what is actually loving and. Keeping in mind our priorities, even like one of the one of the things I tried to set forward here was worship being our priority, a key focal point, uh, and even training people to understand that here's how our church life revolves. That actually revolves around worshiping God, and then that flows out because guys, that's what's most loving actually, and then that flows out into true relationship with our neighbor. Uh, we do develop those. Um, key relationships we try to serve one another in love we're willing to lay out our lives for one another but we don't create busyness as if that's simply going to accomplish the mission um uh yes i i agree with that wholeheartedly and i do think we have to be careful of that in our uh, our wealthy western society where we have so much that we can do or sometimes expect that we forget what's most important you also talked about, in terms of looking at the Old Testament to help teach us and instruct us, mm-hmm. uh, you said that uh, we can bring what is common into worship. We can't bring what is common right. into worship. We have a, there's a danger of it. Yes, right. Uh, you want to give any specifics of ways we bring the common into worship? Uh, great question. Um, and... Uh, Yes, I'm not going to do a very good job right now of giving you a good answer. Um, there was a church that was starting up nearby. Mm-hmm. And they put up a sign, free cheese curd for everyone to come. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, there you go. I think those kinds of things would be a great example of that. Uh, even that distinction in Leviticus, for example, between what is common and what is holy isn't necessarily always between what is sinful and what is holy. Some common things are perfectly legitimate in their proper place. They just weren't to be brought into the worship of God. And uh, and so I think, yeah, that would be a, a great example. I think it's going to drive us to some of those key practices we've already talked about, like the preaching and the, the uh, music, the, the singing, the praying, uh, the Lord's table. These are the kinds of things that are going to be most important to us 
uh, so not turning worship into a sideshow or a circus or um, appealing to all the desires of the flesh, uh, that that kind of a thing. So yeah, great, great starter example to get thinking on that. Are there things in Colorado Springs that that are particular to Colorado Springs? That are particular to Colorado Springs? I don't think necessarily, but. Um, Yes, I mean, this has just become so ingrained in our American churches that it's almost it's almost so common we don't even really think about it, it you know. Um, when the crucial things, like, say, the preaching of the Word and the Lord's Supper are downplayed, but the um, exotic things and the, uh, you know, just the... Um, well, sometimes you think the rock concert atmosphere, the it's that's how you get people, so to speak. And um, unfortunately, it really does blur that whole issue of the holiness of God and what our worship is for. So, yes. All right. I'll try to ask too many questions for what words mean. Sure. But I believe the fellow said panacea. I've never heard of that. Okay. Panacea imply and then um, yes. So um, I can address a, a panacea. That's supposed to be a cure for something okay. to to make it better uh, to fix it. Like a medication. Yep. Yep. Right. Um, so good. Good question. Trying to learn. There you go. All right. Well, unless there are any other uh, questions, once again, thank you. I've uh, certainly enjoyed the fellowship. Pastor Nathan. Uh, one question. Okay. So uh, I mentioned a few books and book recommendations. Yes. Any book recommendations for people who want to start down the path of Christian conservatism? Yes, Pastor Nathan and I were talking about this earlier today. And, and actually, one thing I would recommend tonight, and uh, you know, the books he's given out are great and recommended are great. Um, but if you would say, you know, I'm not a scholar. I'm not even particularly a real reader. Uh, you know, I don't get into reading big, heavy tomes. And um, and a lot of this is unfamiliar to me. Um, one way I've encouraged people to start, just to start getting ideas and seeing things from a certain perspective, is to read some of C.S. Lewis. You could even start with the Chronicles of Narnia. Who here has read the Chronicles of Narnia? Amen. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, good stories, fun, interesting. You, know, you can uh, learn from them, and uh, even reading with your kids. Maybe you know, enjoy uh, learning that. And then, then you might want to read uh, his what's called his Space Trilogy. Um, a little bit heavier reading, kind of different stories there. But if you've been watching the world around us in the last few days, you, uh, years, excuse me, <laughs> you, know, you all definitely resonate with what he says about things in books such as That Hideous Strength. Um, and then one other by Lewis is, uh, especially in the realm of education and maybe parents who are thinking about education for your children, uh, it's called The Abolition of Man. The Abolition of Man is a, is a helpful work. Now, I'll just say up front, it's not like we endorse everything Lewis thought or taught. <laughs> um, but he was a skillful writer in the 20th century who knew how to take, if you will, ancient ideas <laughs> and, and help us see them and, and grasp a little bit more and therefore give us some eyes to see about some of the things that were coming in, in our modern world. For instance, him writing back in the 1950s, about the relativism of our educational system, right? A lot of Christians at that time thought, hey, our schools are pretty decent. You know, we even still had prayer in the school. <laughs> you know, we had, um, and Lewis was saying, uh, we're, the way we're thinking about things is not good here. We need, we need some of that kind of wisdom. And so that's maybe a, a helpful, I mean, most of his books are not long and heavy books. Um, if, if you would say, I'm in that kind of a position, but I'd, I'd be interested in just kind of get some of this mindset. Um, that's one place I would encourage you to start.
So, good. All right. <laughs> so, Pastor Parker has been encouraging us to think especially of Christ's love and working that out one with another, to think especially of our union with Christ in terms of how that would compel and be a foundation for Christian conservatism. Um, uh, over the, the few days that we've been together, I, I came to think about this text because of what he was saying. Um, and I'll just conclude our evening together reading the first four verses of Colossians 3. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Might you go forth in the blessing of knowing our Messiah, who is our life. Not not who will be our life, who is our life. Uh, Might you go forth in that blessing. Thank you for joining us. Um, uh, Many thanks to Pastor Parker, God's grace working uh, through him to us. Um, It has been a joy to be gathered together. Uh, You are dismissed.